Welcome to the Eagle Naz Church Podcast. My name is Bree, and thanks for joining us. We hope that the next 30 minutes helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus, and that you will see how God wants to move in your life. Thanks for listening. So, a few years ago, there was this uh, documentary on monastic life in Mexico, and some of you might know it as Nacho Libre. And this movie paints this picture of an antagonist and a protagonist going at it throughout the movie. But there's the tritagonist in this movie by the name of Escuelito, or Stephen, he calls him. And Stephen has some very profound words that he uses throughout the movie. And one saying that he has is this. He says, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. So one thing I want us to see this morning is what happens when we actually look through the lens of science to the world around us. Because as C.S. Lewis said, the, the point of a window is actually to see something through the window to the world around you. And I believe science is a lens through which we can see the world around us in such a more beautiful, bigger way. But what I'm going to challenge us with this morning is not just the world. We're going to look through science and we're going to see Jesus. Because when I teach through the periodic table, I'm a chemist, and so I have to teach with this little box on the wall. I try to encourage my students to look through the box as a window to the world around us. How is it that God's molecular Lego kit builds things? people, animals, worlds. And so I always challenge my students to think bigger, think through this lens idea. And so when I do that, when I see Paul in Romans 1, he has some very clear things to say about the world that's, that we have around us as a scientist. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident, plainly recognized in the Greek, within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse." So one of the things, as Pastor Tim and I talked through this, this, this upcoming series, was what does it mean to be bigger or greater than our excuses? One of, the, one of the main reasons people are walking away from faith in Jesus or biblical faith is because of science. And to me, that's really sad because the more we understand science, as we're going to see, I think the more it points to Jesus as a loving, amazing, infinite creator. And so when we start this series and we see what is this, what, how can we look through the lens of science and see something greater, something bigger than just the particles or just, you know, gravity or whatever we want to say, the quantum vacuum and gravity working together to produce all life. That's really blessing, right? How is it that we have life? How is it and what is life? What does it look like? Well, I love this series. I love starting with, with uh, Hebrews 1. And you see that God spoke. And this is a, this is a theme that we're going to use throughout this morning. And the author of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made 
the world. You see, Jesus is the creator part of the Trinity, the Father being the architect, the Son being the carpenter. And I want us to be challenged to see Jesus in a bigger way. I used to think of him as just a, a, a philosopher who cruised the Sea of Galilee in Birkenstocks and a tunic. And as I fell in love with chemistry and as I fall, am falling in love more and more with science, I'm seeing how much bigger he is, how much greater he is, far greater than my excuses through my little arguments in science or atheistic science. So what does it mean to speak? If God spoke and is still speaking, what does that look like? Well, there's four words in the Greek for speak. If we look at it in the English, it's basically to utter words. I'm speaking to you right now. Your ears are resonating with the same frequency. Your mind's putting it together, and we're communicating. It means to utter words, articulate sounds with the voice, to express thoughts, opinions, or feelings. To express thoughts. In the Greek, there are four main words for this. The first one is laelo, and it basically is just the mechanical sounds. It's the word that we have there in Hebrews 1. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Literally, they heard his voice, just the mechanics of his voice, the, the waves, if you would. Okay, that's what the first word means. The second word is lego, and it literally means to gather or assemble words. And I don't think the, 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 the original lego people actually used it to assemble plastic toys, but it's kind of funny how that word does sound a lot like the little toys that we play with as Legos. But Lego literally means to gather these words together. John testified about him and cried out saying, Lego there, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So we see that word Lego there. The third word, the third use of a word to portray some form of speaking is the word rhema. It's a declaration with a specific meaning. There's a specific meaning that I want to get across to you. And when that is a specific meaning or, or a thought to you from God, then we're supposed to pay, pay very uh, close attention because that's what Jesus basically says when he says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every rhema, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For he whom God has sent speaks the words, the rhema of God, the phrases, the sayings of God. He gives the spirit without measure. Likewise, we see this throughout John where he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, the rhema that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Simon Peter answered one of my favorite verses in the Bible after he had talked on election, some really hard things. People were walking away and Jesus said, you guys going to leave too? And he says, Lord, to whom are we, shall we go? You have the rhema, the words of eternal life. And lastly, we see this in John, or excuse me, in, in Ephesians with the, the actual sword of the Spirit. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema, the word of God. The literal phrases and sayings of God are the offensive piece of the armor. It's our weapon. So how then do we portray meaning? This, is, this gets into the study of what we call semiotics. Semiotics is a, is a study of how do I actually portray messages and meanings to people. He's a, um, Mike is a professional semiotics person. How do I get message across? Through the first thing is an icon. An icon is something that is not necessarily 
what I'm trying to portray, but it's a caricature of that, like a cat. That's not really a cat, but you know that I want a cat to get across to you. And if you look at this, this is actually up off the Snake River, and you can just see that these look like some type of a deer or antelope or, or some type of, of deer creature that the, the, the ancient people just would carve into the rocks. It's an icon. Um, we're, in a, we're in a society that uses a ton of icons in emojis, right? That's not really a fist pump, but you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Right, you don't know what I'm saying when I do that, by the way. I could be hitchhiking. I could be underwater saying I'm good or it's time to go up or whatever. But the thumbs up is an icon. Likewise, Mount Rushmore is an icon. That's not our four presidents. It's an icon of those four. Even the backside of Mount Rushmore is an icon <laughs> of those presidents. But icons are used to just portray meaning. Okay? It's one of the ways that we can portray meaning. The second way we can portray meaning is the symbols. So if I throw a symbol up there, you see what you think. What do you think right now? I want it. I'm going shopping. You know, you see kids these days and it's like Nike shoes, Nike socks, Nike pants, Nike sweatshirt, Nike hat, Nike. Everything's got the swoosh on it, right? Nike pays a lot of money to have that symbol wanted and desired. What else? Well, Starbucks, Facebook, McDonald's. Of course, these are all symbols. They're not icons, but they're symbols to portray an idea, right? Uh, one of the biggest ones right now, in fact, the number one is that one right there, over $240 billion in this company. And they pay a lot of money to have that little Apple symbol portrayed so that you also want that. But the one that we're going to talk about this morning and the one that we really need to understand is when I portray messages and meanings through a code, all right, codes are very complex. Codes have to be an agreement between a sender and a receiver, right? So with that, the, the sender has a message that he or she wants to portray, and he's going to use some form of a medium. Right now, I'm using the articulation, the sound waves of my voice, okay? That's, I have a meaning in my brain. I'm making my mouth move. You're receiving that message through the audio format, all right? So if I use the word gift, if I say gift, we better be in agreement of what I mean, because you're probably thinking a present. But in German, Hift in German is poison. So we better be clear on what we are talking about. In, in Norwegian, it's Hist, and it means married. So just because I see that J-I-F-T, there has to be an agreement of what we mean by that. And so all of these types of codes, when we see them, we think, okay, wait a minute. The chemistry and the physics of the sand right there is really irrelevant to the message of that word love. The idea of love is not embedded in the sand particles. I can study the silicon dioxide all day long, but I don't understand why there is this L-O-V carved into the sand unless I realize that there was a sender of that. Does that make sense? There has to be a sender with a message using a medium to a receiver. This is the form of semiotics that's very important. And again, you can see it in the clouds. If you see something like that, and you're not thinking, man, it's amazing how the vapor of water formed this message in the clouds. No, 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 no. That came from someone deliberately. And even if we look at all of the, all of the boys that Taylor once loved, <laughs> we can see that there is a message 
being portrayed, and I just happen to be on the end of the receiving part of seeing Taylor's loves. Okay? So we have this, this sender-receiver system, and we use this in codes. Now, one of the great, um, <clears throat> one of the great polymaths of all time is this guy here. Okay? His, his, his name is Leibniz. Now, Leibniz was a polymath, amazingly brilliant man, also had a sick wig, wig collection. But if you think about who this guy was, he's the one that basically came up with this thing that we call binary code, okay? He was the, origin, the, the originator of both calculus, the binary code, and one other thing we're going to see here in a little bit. But what is a binary code? A binary code is when we use a one or a zero, on or off. It was used, by the way, with Paul Revere's famous ride, one if by land, two if by sea. It was a backup code just in case he didn't get to Concord from Boston where he was going to give a message that the British were coming. And it was a backup code. He didn't have to use it, but it was a binary code. One if by land, two if by sea. That's a code. It has to be agreed upon by a sender and a receiver. See how this is working? Okay, so some of us even know of the Morse code. Some of you might have your hands license or whatever, but you know the Morse code, dash, dashes, and dots. So if I take a bunch of series of dashes and dots, it looks like gibberish unless there is agreement between the sender and the receiver. We're tracking. So if I see that, I look at that and I go, what, what does it mean to have a, a dash, a dot, a, a dash, and another dot? Well, that's a C. You can see da, a, a dash, dot, dash, dot. It's a C. What is a dot, 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 dot? That's an H. Oh, I get that. I bet that next one's going to be an E. And you can see how I can spell chemistry using dashes and dots. It is a code between a sender and a receiver. Okay? We also see it within the context of computers. This gets a little more technical, so stay with me on this. You're like, this is on a Sunday morning? Yes. It's fantastic. So, right? So in order for there to be a one and a zero to portray a lot of information, we actually have to pair up the ones and the zeros. So let's explain how this works. A binary code basically means two. It means a one and a zero. That's the binary nature of it. So if I have a, what I would call a one-bit binary code, I can't portray much information. I can either make the one an A or the one a B and a zero an A and a zero a B. So I can only, I can only portray two, two letters to you. Okay, it's not very useful. If I make it a little bit bigger, let's say I do a two-bit binary code, now I have a few more letters that I can portray because now I can double up. I can say it's 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1, but I can still only code for four letters. So this is how computers work. They just keep building up on this. If I take a ternary or a four-bit binary code, I can get pretty close, but not quite the whole alphabet. But when I go to a six-bit binary code, I have enough information now. I can code for 64 characters, which is the entire English language. If I go one step further, you can see that this right here is the old Commodore 64 was an 8-bit binary code. Today, what do we have? We're down here. Okay? This is what most computers are, 64-bit binary systems. Okay? And they can code for a lot of information. Will we ever go to 128 and 256? We do with, with certain types of encryption, but really we're, we haven't even caught up to 64 yet. So it'll be a while before we make the next, next quantum leap, if you will. All right, so, so with this, let's go back and let's see how this works. So let's take the old Commodore 64, one of the original computers that some of you probably played with as kids, and I had one as a kid, and let's see how this codes for, again, chemistry. Well, so if I want a C to come up on the screen on my old Commodore, 
then I would use a, if I go down, I could use a 0100011, and that codes for C. And so this works. Okay? And the next code is going to be for the, the H and the E and the M and the I and the S. And, and pretty soon, then I have this, I have this string of ones and zeros that would, would print out chemistry on the screen. Are we tracking? Aren't you blessed? <laughs> yeah, I am too. So here's the way this actually would work then. A sender has an idea and it has agreed upon format through which the receiver sends that information. Okay? Are we, are we tracking? There's a sender, there's a message, there's a medium, there's a receiver. Now, let's go into science. Okay? Enough of this computer science. Let's go into science. You see, in science, we have these really complex things called cells. And they have amino acids, and they have proteins, they have enzymes. But we are basically a living system that has been coded by a certain code. You have about 3 billion A, G, Cs, and Ts that make you. Okay, it's a code. Let's break this down and see how this works. We have a, in, in the body's chemistry, we don't have 26 letters in our alphabet. We have 20. And we call them amino acids. You don't need to know that. But that's what they are. They actually are, these right here are the letters, if you will, that make life. All life. All life. From fungi all the way up to us, all life uses these 20 letters. Okay? So it's an alphabet. We tracking? We have 26 letters. Our body uses 20, okay? So here's how this works. We take those A, G, Cs, and Ts, and we pair them up. And we pair them up in a very specific way. Follow how this works. It's super cool. So here's my A, G, C, and T. And I'm not going to get into why the difference between uracil and thiamine, the T and U, but just trust me, it's, it's an RNA thing. So A, G, C, and T, or U, okay, with the RNA, is my first language. How do I then go to my second language? Well, my second language, like I said, has 20, right? Not 26. The, all the amino acids of all life are those 20 letters right there, okay? So how do I code for those? Well, this is kind of cool. I don't have a binary code. I have a ternary code. I have four, not just two, not ones and zeros. I have A, G, C, and U, or A, G, C, and T, all right? So here's the way we do this. If I just do a one-bit ternary code, well, I can only code for four letters, I need 20, right? Well, if I have a two-bit ternary code, I still am not quite there. I can only code for 16. So what happens within the body is the body uses a three-bit ternary code. And by having a three-bit ternary code, we call that a codon, I now can code using that three-bit ternary code for all 20 of the amino acids and some redundancy, okay? So watch how this works. When I take that three-bit ternary code, there it is, I'm going to read along on that until I see the word, the, the, the code AUG, which is, I always, always think, I always teach it, says that's August, right, the start of school. So you look for your first AUG, and you see it right there. So now once you see your AUG, now the rest of these can be coded up in, or paired up into threes, into triads. So give them a three-bit ternary code. We tracking? So watch how this works. My second language, and this is just a little tool to help us know what letter the UGC is going to spell. So here's the way it works. You guys can do it with me. Here's a U, okay? Here's a G, and here's a C right here. So that codes for C. We call it cysteine, but it puts a C there. We code for C, A, C, and that codes for histidine, another letter. We code for G, 
EAA, and that is glutamic acid, or E. And as we keep this three-bit ternary code reading along this pathway, what do we get ultimately? We get a word chemistry. Now, think about this. We just explained binary codes that use computers, and we know that those came through a lot of very, very grueling work in the laboratory to produce those machines that we use today in our everyday life. And yet there is the same code within us that is infinitely more complex. I'm only showing you a tiny little sample of the three billion AGs, Cs, and Ts that code for you and me. Now, if that doesn't bring praise to a sender, I don't know what will. This to me is so much greater than my excuses to look into science and say, eh, science. Science is basically proven that there is no God. Really? Can you point to the experiment that you guys did to show that? Because I can't. But when I let the data speak, and when I look out through, what do I see? I see an amazing coding that produced all of us in this room. And by the way, each of us has a different word. The three billion that make you you is you. It's very, very unique. Even Cade and Drew being identical twins, there is a slight difference in the way that they've been methylated through their environment. They are unique. And it's a powerful, powerful thing for us to look through this semiotics of science and say, wait a minute, this is pointing to a sender. And so with that, we see this complexity of all of these amazing things within the body from motors and and uh, little tracks. This is a little track, and this little guy, if it were animated, is moving along a track, moving stuff in and out of the cell. It's a complete little city within every cell of the body, all coded for by a three-bit ternary code. I think that's pretty amazing. I think that's pretty profound and huge. You see, of those three billion A, G, Cs, and Ts that make up the human genome, it's one big, giant, complex word. There's a word that spells you. And I would say that that word knew you and the spelling of you before any particle was brought into existence. One of, I, 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 I have to just look at this complexity of this three-bit ternary code. And up here, I know that all of this came from an agreement between a sender and a receiver. And when I look down here, how is it that I can just say, yeah, it just happened all by this random process and a cosmic accident, and good for you, that we're actually in the right universe that has it all together. At some point, I have to take those two worldviews and say enough is enough. This one does not hold the weight of my life. This one does. And it is greater than my understanding. And he is greater than my understanding. 
And yet he's invited me into relationship with him. And this to me is an exciting thing because when I look out at the actual lab, I know that here's the Bell Lab back in the day when they were trying to pound out this 8-bit binary code. And now what we're seeing from science is these A, G, Cs, and Ts make us. And you're going to ask me that the original laboratory was that? Enough. Enough. Greater than my excuses? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my heroes, again, going back to the science realm is Anthony Flew. Now, it doesn't really matter who Anthony Flew is, but I'll just give you a little primer because he's a hero of mine. Anthony Flew was one of the leading atheists of the 20th century. He wrote books that I can't even fathom the depths of those. But as the leading atheist trying to teach us how to think, atheistic humanism, a dictionary of philosophy, he was the who's who of atheism in the 20th century. And when Anthony Flew saw the semiotics coming out of this three-bit ternary code of DNA, he said, time out. My entire life's philosophy has been built on the belief that this is all by accident and random processes. And as he began to study semiotics, semiotics do not just happen with the roll of a dice. It's a very specific sequence that spells chemistry, and it's a very specific sequence that spells you and me. And you start to mess with that information much, and we have horrible things that are called mutations. And it doesn't work. And Anthony Flew realized that. And at the end of the day, he had enough humility to say, I'm wrong. And if you look at why it is, in his own words, he says, my one and only piece of relevant evidence for an Aristotelian God is the apparent impossibility of providing a naturalistic theory of the origin from DNA of the first reproducing species. I'm wrong. He goes on to say, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that the universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originated in a divine source. We are without excuse. And the last book he wrote in 2004 was There Is a God. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, if that doesn't challenge you, if that doesn't bless you, I'm not sure how we can do it through chemistry. Because to me, that window, which I see the world around me, is an absolute aha, wow. You spoke that into existence. Leibniz, as a philosopher, asked perhaps the greatest philosophical question of all time. There's some great ones but this is the greatest. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? And if you want to be logically consistent with this, if you start with nothing, you have to still have nothing. Something doesn't emerge from nothing. If we truly had nothing in the beginning, we should have nothing now. You don't have nothing and then a ripple in the nothingness. You have something, not nothing. Nothing means nothing. Are we clear? 
semiotics there, right? Nothing means nothing. So the answer then, or as we ponder that question, is then why is there something rather than nothing? Why do we look out around us and see something instead of this eternal nothingness? And obviously the most logical answer is because there is something outside of this physical world. And so with this question, we end up with our third, excuse me, our fourth use of speaking. And it's my favorite. And the word is logos. Logos is different than rhema. Rhema, specific phrases and sayings of God. We memorize, we use the sword of the Spirit, the word, the rhema. But the fourth use of the word to speak is logos. And it's literally the rational or the reason or the really real. You see, when I ask my students, why is there something rather than nothing, I like to challenge them with a follow-up question. Describe for me the nature of the really real. What is really real? Don't tell me gravity. Don't tell me the quantum vacuum, which very few people understand, including me. Don't tell me space. Don't tell me particles, because I'm a chemist and I'm not going to give you that one. Don't tell me energy, light, time. Don't tell me that, because I know all of that had a beginning. You see, what the really real is at the end of the day is this. Father, Son, Spirit. In infinite intimacy, with infinite love for each other, with infinite joy, with infinite peace, with infinite godness. And they said, let us make man in our image. And in order for you and I to be made in his image, he had to go, let there be space. Let there be energy. Let there be photons. And as the spirit hovered and moved and began to make, the mind was also thinking DNA and you in mind. Because I stand here fully convinced that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he had each of us in mind before the first particle was spoken into existence. He knew us. Greater than our excuses? Way greater than our excuses. The Logos is the Word, the living Word. Now listen to this. My favorite verse, John 1.1. 1, 1. I don't know about you, but I've always, I've always been interested in kind of like, well, why, why, John, why did you pick, why, why, through the power of the Spirit, why did you pick that word? Because if you're going to describe your Jesus, what are you going to say? I'm going to say, in the beginning, was truth. I'm just going to start right there. That's my favorite descriptor of Jesus. But John doesn't say that. He could have said, in the beginning was love. Would have been a great one. That's our commandment, love one another, right? That's the greatest commandment. Love is very important. Truth is very important. But he doesn't. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was this rational 
order, this reason, the reality. Because that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 1 where he says, because of Jesus, all things are and we are the purpose is for Jesus. Now that to me is exciting because John goes on to say all things were made by Jesus and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. You and I are here today because Jesus said let there be and this universe leapt into existence. Now I don't know about you, but that makes Jesus pretty big. If every single particle in this universe is being held together right now by Jesus, that makes him pretty big. And that's who my Jesus is. And I see that Jesus through the lens of science. In my laboratories and in my lectures, I see Jesus. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, because there is someone. And his name is Jesus. And he is the Lagos. Do you know him? I spent a lot of my life learning about Jesus. And the crazy thing about that is I missed Jesus. Oh, I could articulate Calvin, Arminian, all the worthless things that a young, arrogant little high schooler learns. But you know what? I missed Jesus. Jesus is my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That verse has rocked my world because he speaks. And when he speaks, do I hear his voice? Because he is speaking right here and right now. He is greater than my excuse. He is the infinite Logos. And I love, and we're going to end with Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. And I'm going to end with this. Do you know him? because we are without excuse. He is knowable, and he is there, and he is not silent. So today, I would ask all of us, do I really know this man? Because he is the Logos. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is life. And Jesus, we come before you right now. You are beyond awesome. You are everything. There's no life. There's no hope. There's no beauty. There's no joy. There's nothing apart from you. And I ask this day through the power of your spirit that you would challenge us to get to know you. 
not head knowledge about you, but sheep knowledge of you as the shepherd. Take us into relationship this day. Reveal the power and the love of your voice to us today. I love you so much. And I want people to fall in love with you and see you through the world that has been created. So Lord, whatever was of me today, I ask that you would burn up. But whatever was of the power of your spirit, I ask that you would take it deep into our hearts and our minds as we go this week and reflect more and more on you as the word, the Lagos. Because in the beginning was you. I love you. Thank you for this time. Be glorified in your name. Amen.